verses 1 to 8, and then from 12... Are you on? Is it on? Just hold it a bit closer. 12 to 18. So if, in case you missed it, Psalm 115, 1 to 8, and then 12 to 18. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. And now from verse 12. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thanks, Lindell. We're continuing our series on working our way through the Ten Commandments and we are doing it in reverse order. We come this morning to our second last one, which is the Second Commandment. And God's Word says, Exodus 20, verse 4, this is the command. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and who has been pleased to reveal himself, yourself and truth to us. We thank you for your word and we thank you for these commands. Help us, Lord, to investigate and to understand what you intend and what you mean by them. Help us this morning to understand this second commandment and its implications and application to each of our lives. Lord, bless us that we might be a blessing both to you and to others, in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess you might be thinking that we're on pretty safe ground here this morning. Most of us haven't made any idols or anything like that, or bowed down to them, though some of you may have. Will that appear at the back, Gabe? Otherwise, I'm going to have to keep turning or doing something. 
Um, most of us haven't made idols or bowed down to them, or have we? Perhaps it's even possible that some here this morning, you may have been to another country, maybe of something background, and you may have been involved in some way in doing that. James Emery White, who was one of my favourite authors, he says more people are committing idolatry today than ever before. It's one of the greatest areas of disobedience in life, even Christians. But we are guilty of breaking this command. Well, let's see what the command means and let's see if James Emery White is correct. What is the second commandment? Well, it's pretty simple. Don't make an image to represent God in any form, any shape, out of any material. Don't make an image. Nor, it means, nor make an image of false gods, of other gods, idols. Number three, don't bow down to them, don't worship them and don't serve them. And we're given a reason in this, and it's a very strong reason in this second commandment, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. What does that mean? That he punishes to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him, those who don't walk in his ways and follow him, but who blesses to a thousand generations of the families of those who do follow him, of those who do love him, who worship and serve and obey him. Well, don't make an image in any form of anything in heaven above, birds, on the earth beneath, animals or in waters below, See. Does this mean it forbids art? Jewish people certainly went close to that direction. Of all of the areas of study in the world today, the one area where they are the weakest is in the area of the arts because they don't want to break that commandment. The commandment is not opposed to art, nor is God for that matter, whether it's sculpting or whether it's building and making things or whether it's painting things or whatever. Remember that God decorated the tabernacle and the temple with... Uh, a statue of uh, cherubim and also pomegranates and other things woven into the curtain. So it's not opposed to art. It's opposed to art, if you like, that has a divine purpose to it. Making something that is to represent God or gods. What are idols? What are these things that we are talking about? Well, idols are... Anything crafted by a tool, carved, chiseled, engraved, cut or shaped. For the purpose of making a representation of the divine being. I think we understand that. Idols are fanciful. They're made by us, made by people to represent the divine. We don't see many of them around these days. You do see a statue of Buddha every now and again and you may see some shrines and things. But not like the ancient world where there were statues and altars and all sorts of to the gods everywhere. That's not true so much in the West these days, but it's still true in our world. You go, to over, go overseas, go to other countries, other nations, and you'll see idols and statues and so on. For us, if you want to see them, you need to go to the museums. Where we tend to use them for educational purposes, but not for worshipping purposes. An idol is anything that usurps the place of God in our hearts. That's what an idol is. It's a transference from thinking about and focusing on the true and living God to the object. Now, that's not how they start. If I get... Oh, I'll answer this question first. Um, 
as we heard in that psalm, they're speechless, they're motionless, they're actionless, and they are lifeless. Probably not just that psalm, but Isaiah 1 and then Isaiah 44, I think it is, and a few other passages in the Scriptures have quite disparaging comments about idols. The most in the ancient literature, the most disparaging comes from something out of the Apocrypha called the, book, uh, the, letter, of Jer- of Je- the letter of Jeremiah which if you have an Apocrypha, if you have a Catholic Bible, for instance, or a copy of the Apocryphal books, then sometimes it's included as the last chapter of the book of Barak, or it stands by itself, the letter of Jeremiah, it's 73 verses, and it's, it pokes fun at, for instance, the gods have to be dusted, they're like furniture. Bats and birds and cats come and sit on them and poop on them. If there's a fire in the temple, they can't flee. They have to stay there and be burned alive. You have to lock the temples up at night because robbers might come in and steal them. They can't defend themselves. They can't do anything to help themselves. It's a satire, a critique of what it means. These idols, in fact, become that which was designed initially perhaps to be an aid to worship becomes, in fact, a barrier to worship. Dead idols, God says in this commandment, cannot represent the living God. Well, why do people make idols? Well, probably because the idols give the devotees a sense of God being real, but also close, something like that. People make idols because ultimately they lack a real relationship with the real living God. And because of that lack, there's an emptiness inside, this lack of Knowing God, this lack of grandeur in them is being replaced by accumulating other smaller experiences and pleasures in the hope that if the sum of all of the parts, the material parts, were to add it up, it might be equal to or greater than the spiritual, which they are lacking. People make idols because they're in rebellion against God. Romans chapter 1 says, because they didn't want to retain the knowledge of God in their minds, they turned their hearts and they replaced God with images and creatures of animals or fish or whatever so ultimately people make idols for religious reasons but in fact they're not religious they're rebellious jesus certainly understood this command to be addressing not just the human tendency to make physical representations of god but he also understood it when whenever we as people start to revere material things created things over him over the creator Now, remember James White's comment. Whenever we revere material things or created things more than the Creator, we are moving in the direction of idolatry. That's certainly how the Lord Jesus understood it. He said money could become a God. Greed, Colossians 3.5, is idolatry. It's this, greed. It's not an actual physical God, but it's something which has supplaced God being supreme in our hearts. Something else is now driving us matthew 6 24 the lord jesus says no one can serve two masters who can no one can you can't i can't no one can you can't serve two masters you're going to love one and disrespect the other or you're going to serve one and not serve the other one or the other you can't serve two masters jesus says no one can serve god and our english bible says money NIV, which is accurate, it's true. Most modern versions will say money. But the Aramaic word in the old King James is a better word. We should keep it, even though we don't understand it. 
We should put a note to explain it's mammon. What's mammon? Well, it's a little bit broader than money. Mammon is our possessions, our wealth, our property, our assets, our worldly rich, it's all of that stuff. You can't serve God and mammon. You might be getting an idea now how James Emery White is probably correct, is correct in his thinking that we do commit idolatry and we're breaking this commandment a lot. One commentator said, whilst this transference of allegiance to God to these other things, uh, whilst this may not be a conscious act of worship, it is often a deliberate substitute for worship. While creation is good and God has declared it good, certainly before the fall, once the material or the physical starts dominating our affections and challenges our devotion to God, then those things become idols. We replace the good creator with the goods of creation. Well, why shouldn't we make idols or images? What are the reasons that God has given us in the scriptures and in this command? Well, think about it. It's because no image constructed by human hands could ever replace or represent the totality of who God is, that he is transcendent, that he is majestic, and that he is holy. Can't do it. And that's why God says, don't even try. It's not helpful. We cannot paint, chisel, shape any adequate representation of God. Little boy was once, Sunday school or whatever, drawing a picture. Teacher said to him, what are you drawing a picture of? He says, I'm drawing a picture that man there is Adam and that woman there is Eve and it's a picture of a car and the person in the front is, it's a picture of God driving Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And the teacher said, but nobody knows what God looked like. The little boy said, well, when I'm finished, they will. <laughs> you can't do it. You cannot draw God. Whatever you draw is going to be a reduction of him. It's going to be less than. All images will always be less than what he really is. Therefore, images can only reduce him. To attempt to do so, one person said, <clears throat> is the equivalent of asking a musician to play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony using a referee's whistle. There's far much more beauty and glory to that piece of music than can be duplicated or replicated in a referee's whistle. Makes sense, doesn't it? So too with God. We are not to reduce him, either physically or mentally. Why does God say no? Because it's not helpful. Ultimately, it's misleading, it limits God, and in fact insults God, and it obscures his glory from us. Remember the golden calf? We'll come to that in a couple of weeks, I'm sure. They weren't making a false god. They were making an image of Yahweh. They were making an image of the true God. They wanted a physical reminder. Moses is up the mountain. He's gone. We don't know where he's gone. He hasn't come back for 40 days and 40 nights. He's gone. We heard God, but we haven't seen God. We need something to remind us of God. Well, that seems to be a good motivation. And then Aaron will come to this, but he excuses himself, doesn't he? He took some gold and collected it. And he said, I just threw it in the fire and out popped the golden calf. I'm not responsible. 
And God was what? Absolutely furious. Sent Moses down and God judged them and nearly wiped them out. It's only because Moses interceded that God didn't wipe them out. God's response to idols, that golden calf. What will the Father's response be to our idols? Well, he tells us. He doesn't let it go. It has serious consequences. We have the freedom to choose, but all choices have consequences. Today, of course, in our world, anything just about goes. And whatever you want to believe is okay. That's fine for you. You can believe about God, whatever, whatever you like. Good catch. There was a book written by a Jewish rabbi, a Catholic priest, and the four was written by the Dalai Lama. It should be a beauty, shouldn't it? The, word, the, the book is titled, How Do You Spell God? And it's a whole collection of all sorts of things. The, the gist of the book is basically to say that God is like a huge mountain and all of the religions of the world are like different roads going up the mountain. Where do all of the roads get to? Top of the mountain. That's the premise of the book. But of course, it's nonsense. It's not true. The authors want to say, it doesn't really matter what you believe. You believe that, that's good for you. But it does matter. It's truth and a lie. God says, and God is very particular about, how we think about him, how we worship him. That's why the second commandment gives a very serious warning. Um, it's attached to it. A false image of God, physically or mentally, means that you have either a false relationship with God or you have a relationship with a false God. I'll say that again. A false, an, an image of God or a false image of God, the wrong way even we think about him, means that we either have a false relationship with a true God or we have a relationship with a false God. Because the way we think about him is not what he is like. I've had people come to me over the years and uh, other lecturers and universities have quoted similar experiences, Christians. They've had people come to them and say, I don't believe in God anymore. Okay? Tell me about the God you don't believe in. And they outline certain parameters or attributes or qualities of God that are particularly revolting to this person, to which often you're able to say, well, I don't believe in that God either. That's not the true and living God. Your understanding of him, your perception of him is wrong. God, the true and living God, the only God. You see, God is not a God. He's the only God. So all of these things, they've got to be false by definition. They've got to be untrue. So God wants us to take him very seriously and to think about him correctly. Back in the 1930s in the city of Detroit, there was a stranger on a bus and three young men on that bus thought they'd have some fun and they tried picking a fight with him. There was no response. <clears throat> Minutes passed, they kept trying, he just kept ignoring them. He was sitting at the back of the bus and then the bus stopped, came to the place where he was stopping. He stood up. He was a lot bigger than what he looked when he was sitting down. He just walked up to the young men, he gave them his business card, he went to the front and got off um, the bus. They looked at the card, the card said, Joe Lewis, boxer. They had tempted fate with the future heavyweight boxing champion of the world. Point. How we evaluate a person 
how we evaluate God, surely affects the way that we treat them or him and how we behave in their presence. And we are always in God's presence. How we understand and value God's reality, his nature, what he is like and his name shapes the way that we approach him and live in his world. We need to be reminded and to always that God is other, he's different, he's holy, he is above and beyond. Your brain, my brain, our brains cannot contain him. He is without rival, he is without equal, he is exalted. That's the mistake of the modern day atheists who want to simply put that great, true, living and transcendent God into the same category as these gods. And just like we don't believe in elves and, well, I don't think we do, <clears throat> or fairies or other magical things, like we don't believe in these gods, they argue, this is their argument, just as you don't believe in that, we just go one more than you, we don't believe in him. But they're making a mistake of category. God is not in that category, he's in a totally other category by himself he is the true and living god idolatry in fact dethrones him belittles him relegates him it's like he's the architect and we take the architect and we make him part of the building that's what idolatry does god cannot be contained by a body in a, in a building or in an idol because he is spirit and he's omnipresent Then our Muslim neighbours will say to us, hang on, isn't Jesus a finite image of the limitless God? Yep, Jesus is the expressed image of God. But God can choose to manifest himself bodily anytime and any way he wants to. What he chooses to do does not give us permission for us to try to duplicate it. God has, throughout human history, appeared bodily or at least visibly to people. He appeared to Adam in the Garden of Eden. He appeared to Abraham. He appeared to Moses on the mountain. Moses saw his back. God has appeared in visions. Exodus 24, 33, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation. But all those visions and appearances are simply glimpses. They are not the full containment. For, Jesus, for God to come into our world, for him to limit himself and become a physical material in a body is a very gracious condescension on his behalf. And bear in mind, we have no pictures, no paintings, no statues and no descriptions of what Jesus actually looked like. It's wrong to make one for the purposes of worship. Well, I've sort of alluded to this very quickly. I think I've answered it. What about images in my mind? It's impossible to read the scriptures. It's impossible, I think impossible, to read anything without imagining what you're reading. And so as you read the scriptures, you're getting a picture, an idea of what Jesus was like and what God is like. And when I close my eyes and when I pray, I have a picture in my mind. I imagine approaching somebody, a being, who sits on a throne. Sometimes I even imagine sitting on his lap but it's a picture it's not real but it demonstrates for me something that's going on up here 
The commandment particularly is opposed to, I don't have that picture up there so that I can worship it. I worship him. And so as C.S. Lewis says, um, all of our human constructs must always be open to critique and to correction. We have to submit our imaginations to biblical truth about the Creator. Listen to this, Moses came down from Mount Sinai, not with visible representations of God, not with drawings or statues, but he came down with two flat pieces of stone with words written on them, the Ten Commandments. How did God choose to reveal himself? By his word. Not by pictures, not by images, by his word. And he still chooses to do exactly that. The task of communicating the truth of who he is, God has entrusted in the Old Testament to prophets, not to artists, not to craftsmen, but to those who speak his word. So too with us. He has demonstrated, he wants us to demonstrate his reality through the gospel. So I've got a question for you. What image do you have of God in your mind? Is it true and correct? Is it being critiqued by the scriptures? That raises this question. Don't mean to offend anybody, but... And this is... You've got to work out where you stand on this. What about the crucifix? Jesus on a cross. We have a cross. A cross. Is it right or wrong to have a crucifix? Is it helpful to worship or isn't it? My crucifix is in fact breaking this command. It's having a picture. It does exactly what an idol does. It contains, it conveys a fraction of who he really is. It points to one particular thing that he did. It's the most significant act of love in all of human history, him dying on the cross for us. That's not the whole picture. The crucifix is demonstrating his physical pain and agony. It doesn't demonstrate his separation from God. It doesn't refer to his resurrection, the power of it. And the crucifixion without the resurrection is meaningless, Paul says. It's the victory of the resurrection that our sins, that our justification comes. So is it helpful? Well, undoubtedly some people do find it helpful, but ultimately I think you'll find it harmful. It'll limit you in your understanding of who Jesus is. And then, I won't go into that, I don't think I... No. The Catholic Church has lots of statues and the Greek Orthodox has statues as well. And they justify it by saying they don't adore those statues, they don't worship them, they simply venerate them. Well, they stand before God on all of those things. I think they're wrong and they shouldn't do it. Um, and if, you, if they argue, but we find it so helpful, then I would point them to the Scriptures. This is what God has given us to understand what he is like. He didn't give us statues or pictures or all those other sorts of things. Um, and it's when Jesus comes, ultimately, that we'll have a true and real picture, a real understanding of what he's like. Study the Gospels. What is he like? You can't look at this command without answering this question. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation, punishing the kids for what the parents do wrong if we don't follow God of those who hate him. Number one, 
In us, jealousy is a bad thing, isn't it? It's a vice. But in God, it can't be. In God, in fact, it's moral excellence. It's not God being a petulant little bully or having a temper tantrum. It's not ridiculous or controlling or any of those sorts of things. It's the supreme holy being, the one who owns all things and therefore doesn't have cravings to possess other things. It's not that form of jealousy. Jealousy is not an emotion, I don't think. It's more of an action. It's what God will do. It's his response to infidelity and betrayal. He cannot bear, our creator, to see us being seduced by false gods. Nor can he stand his glory being stolen. So jealousy is, in fact, a part of the divine being. God is not jealous of other gods. He is jealous for us and for his glory. Just like a husband is jealous for his wife in a pure, holy sense, not a selfish, manipulative sense. So God is jealous for us to be rightly related to him and for his glory. I've got to hurry up. Three and fourth generations, punishing the sins of the parents on the kids. Three and four generations, in fact, what a healthy person in Moses' time, um, and maybe ours as well, would hope to see in life. Therefore, what the Lord, I think, is saying is, you know, if you hate me, if you reject my commandments and you don't follow me, and you don't submit to me, you don't worship and serve me, if you go your own way... There'll be consequences in your life, your children's life, in your grandchildren's life, to the third and fourth generations, in your life. It'll last as long as you do. But God is merciful, it says, <clears throat> kind and loving and gracious to a thousand generations. In other words, it's longer than recorded human history. Just to put it in context, how many generations are there from Moses to us? 175. But God is merciful and gracious to a thousand generations, in other words, for all of human history. Let me put it this way. God's jealous outrage will be visible for the totality of the life of the rebel, those who hate him. Whereas God's blessing on the faithful will be beyond the human capacity to absorb it all. You won't be able to fathom it all. And of course, this is a general statement. It's not a mathematically precise one though not wanting to get into it, there are spiritual implications, particularly in spiritual warfare and demonic possession for the third and fourth generation things, but they're general statements. It's generally true. You can swap streams. I come from a long line, as far as I know, of unbelievers, of people who hated God, who did not follow God, did not worship him, did not serve him. And I don't know how many generations I would go back before I could find a believer. But I'm a believer because of his grace, his mercy, because of his call in my life and he worked in me and convicted me and drew him to himself. So you can swap streams. You're not locked in. This is not to be read legalistically or literally in that sense. It's a general statement about the implications of God working his purposes out in the world. And there is no guarantee that if you follow God, therefore your children will be blessed. Isaac can give birth to an Esau. David can give birth to an Absalom. The Bible says, train up a child in the way they should go. It's not a promise. It's a general statement. If you do that, then they won't depart from it. Generally, that's true. But you know exceptions as well as I do. Well, time's gone.
done that. We grow like the God we worship. Psalm 115 verse 8 says exactly that. So the God we have in our understanding, we will grow to become like him. To us, our God and Father of our Lord Jesus is holy, wise, loving, gracious. He is kind, he is forgiving. If we have that picture, that understanding of what he is like, then we'll grow to be conformed to the image of his son. I need to ask you the question, good things can become idols. The bronze serpent, Numbers 21, did become an idol in 2 Kings chapter 18, I think it is. Have you allowed something good to become your first priority? Possession, habit, relationship, position, reputation. Have you allowed something good to become top for you? If you have, you're committing idolatry. You're replacing God with that thing or person. I'm not going to tell you that story. When Jesus appears then we will be ultimately made to be like him. Solomon is a warning to all of us that he was a man who followed God, but through his liaisons with all of his wives and concubines who had false gods, his heart went astray. Read 1 Kings 11. 11. It's a sad, sad story. Two things to finish with. Um, Whatever we think about God... If it is inaccurate, if it is untrue, if it's theologically not correct, then in fact you're creating a false god in your mind. If you worship a god with only some of the attributes that he talks about in the scriptures, but not all of them, if you take those bits but you don't talk, God is a god of love and mercy and kindness, not a god of wrath, not a god of justice, well then you're creating an image of a false god if that makes sense. This is getting into deep water now, but your understanding of the Trinity or not a Trinity, those people who say they believe in God but they don't believe he is triune, false God. Or even as Christians, you could have an understanding of the Trinity which is a false understanding of the Trinity. It becomes heresy. That if you think the Father is the only true God and the Son and the Spirit and it's admission to him and that God of the Father is the creator and Jesus and the Spirit are not equal to him, it's heresy, it's a false God. There is no hierarchy, they are all equal. And then ultimately, of course, this is the second thing I wanted to say and the last thing. We are God's image bearers, we're not to make images, we are to be those image bearers. Right back in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God made us in his image. But sin ruined it, defaced it. Didn't remove it, it's just murky God sent Jesus to restore and to repair his image in us Jesus of course is the true image of the invisible God the Bible tells us Jesus can say if you've seen me you have seen the Father so now when we come to God through Jesus he gives us his Holy Spirit who lives in us he works in us repairing that image that God wants us to have so that we can live for his glory so this commandment is telling us that we've got to think right about God So we need to read the word so that we can have a correct understanding of him. And we are to worship him. Not to uphold our precious little whatever, possessions or ideas or anything else. We are to focus on Jesus and to glorify him. Let me pray. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, and dear Holy Spirit, the triune living God, you are the only God. You have revealed yourself to us in your word. Help us to be diligent students of your word. Correct our ideas and our images that we have of you. Help us to have it correct according to your revelation. And we ask, Lord, that you would restore in us and grow in us the image that you created us for. May the image of Jesus, may we be conformed to him increasingly. We pray and ask this because it's your will. In Jesus' name. Amen.